Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We'll be reading verses um, 6 through 11 this morning. Romans chapter 2, 6 through 11. And as you're making your way that way, um, there's something I want to mention. I didn't want to, I didn't want to mention it while um, Matt was up here. I didn't want to make him emotional. Um, but I got really, I got news today that really touched my heart. And, uh, and that was um, that Cal City... Um, today, uh, the city of Cal City announced, uh, basically named today Frank Behera Day after Matt's uh, late father. Um, Matt went to be home, Matt's uh, dad, Frank, went to be home with the Lord uh, a year ago yesterday. And I just, I just realized, I feel like I need to share a little bit about that because it wasn't out of just, you know, them being patronizing that they did that. They did that. That's because of who Frank was. Frank was a man who loved the gospel, and he was somebody that loved people, and that rubbed off on everybody in the in the the, the community of Cal City. Uh, you know, the city council, the, the the fire department, the sheriff's department, um, all the different pastors. Um, in fact, one of the things I miss is on Sunday mornings about six thirty, I would always get a text saying, "I'm praying for you." And it just made me realize that when I grow up, I want to be, I want to be like Frank. Um, and so with that being said, um, when you get a chance, just give, uh, give Matt and Aaron an extra big hug and, uh, and just you know, love on them. Obviously, it's a bittersweet uh, thing for them. But uh, may we all aspire to, to grow in the grace and to love people the way that, that Frank Behera did. So in that, let us come before the Lord and we'll pray for the reading and the preaching of His Word. Father, you are so incredibly good to us. And the more that we learn about you, the more we come face to face with the things that we don't know and we see just how overwhelming your mercy and your grace is. That we get a glimpse of it at one point and as we continue to grow in our understanding of you and uh, experience that in other people, we see just how deep and wide your love really is. And we see that in people like Frank Behera. Father, we just pray for his family that you would continue to be with his wife, Michelle, and, and that you would love on her and continue to draw her close and that you would be with all of, uh, of his children, including uh, Matt. And I pray, Lord God, that all of us would just continue to remind ourselves that the separation that we experience now is but temporary because of the promise of Christ, that we all have hope in you and that we have hope in that that reunion one day as, as you set all things right and we are able to spend eternity in even closer fellowship with one another. Father, we thank you for your word and the promise that it gives us. And we pray, Lord God, as we approach it today, that our hearts would be humble and ready to, to hear, that we'd be hungry to receive the nutrition and the nourishment that your word provides. And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen me, Lord, that you would use me in a way that brings glory to you and that overcomes all of my insufficiencies. And I pray, Father God, that all of us will be ready to hear and to do what you call us to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. 
Jerry Bridges, the, uh, the late minister and author, once wrote, God does not exalt His mercy at the expense of His justice. And in order to maintain His justice, all sin without exception must be punished. Contrary to popular opinion, with God there is no such thing as mere forgiveness. There is only justice. Justice. What, what is justice? I mean, Webster's defines justice as the maintenance or administration of what is just, especially by impartial adjustment of conflicting claims or the assignment of merited rewards or punishments. Well, that's pretty dry and academic, but in essence, justice is what we would expect where an impartial party or system makes something just. It makes what is unjust, right? It takes what is unjust and makes it right again or just. Justice is the process of making or keeping things right. And this is accomplished through settling conflict between parties who have competing claims or through a system of reward and, and punishment. That's really the essence of justice. Now, now the truth is, humans instinctively have a sense of what justice is, even if they can't define it as dryly as Webster's can. We all kind of have a sense of what it, what it means. I mean, if you work for an agreed-upon wage and you are paid what, you, what, what, what has been agreed, that, we know, is justice, right? If you, were, if you were shorted, though, what you were supposed to be paid, we know that that is not justice, right? And what we all want is justice. You will want someone to make it right when you are shorted because, because being shorted is itself an injustice. That's, by the way, is why we have labor laws. That's why we have, have lawyers to settle those kind of disputes. It is to ensure just employment practices. All right. But how about this? If someone takes your stuff from you, that you have worked hard for and that you have earned by your own efforts, or somebody has given you as a gift, if someone takes your stuff from you, what is your natural response to that? Your natural response is to want to get that stuff back. It is yours. You'll be the one who, you would want someone who took your stuff to make it right. You will want them to restore what was taken and that, that there would be at least some form of punishment for what they have done. If someone walks up to you and slaps you in the face for no reason at all, you're still going to want justice to be done, either from you as you retaliate or through the law. That's justice. If you buy something that was supposed to last 10 years, but it fails to last three, you want somebody somewhere to make it right. That is justice. If someone you love is being exploited by someone else, you will want an end to come to that exploitation. You will want somebody to, to change those circumstances and make it right. If someone you know or love is egregiously harmed or killed by someone, you expect for that offender to be judged, that they would answer for their actions, and that they would be punished accordingly. That's the justice we expect. And we, we all instinctively know if someone is let off of those crimes, whether it's a technicality or, or corruption, we would say that that is what? Injustice. So everybody, everybody has a sense of justice. Even atheists, those who claim that God does not exist, have a sense of justice. Just talk to them, right? Which, by the way, the fact that, that every atheist has a sense of justice is proof that they know that God exists, because the idea of justice does not make sense from an atheistic worldview, by the way. Because if there is no God, if there is no creator, then life is simply the product of random chance processes as the natural laws work on each other, which means that there ultimately is no purpose for anything. There is no such thing as morality. And, and the idea of justice is just a mist in the wind. Ultimately, there will be no justice if if the atheists are right. But everyone 
including the atheist, everyone, including children, understand right, that justice exists. Everybody has a sense of justice. That is why we all agree that there are just certain things that are wrong. We agree that rape is wrong. We agree that murder, the taking of an innocent life is wrong, that, that, that racism is wrong, that slavery is wrong. That's why we would all agree that, that wrongs that happen need to be made right, not simply that, that they just are left alone. We have a built-in understanding and a need for justice. And for that reason, right? And I mean, excuse me, the reason for that, the reason why we have that built-in need is because we, because why? We were created in the image of God. We have a sense of justice because God himself is just. You see, justice is one of his attributes, the same as, as his love. God is good, we will say. God is holy, God is righteous, and God is also just. And as such, he himself is the standard of what justice is. Justice is a reflection of God's own character. And because of that, and because we were created in his image, we tend to gravitate towards justice. We all want justice, at least when it involves us. I mean, we always want justice when somebody does us wrong, right? We always want justice for our loved ones. We always want justice for the causes we find important. We want justice in the sphere that we're in because we know that justice ultimately is good, right? It is good for, the, for, for wrong to be made right. It is good for those who do wrong to be held accountable. It is good for those who do right to be rewarded on the other side of that. We recognize that. We desire that. We all see the importance of justice on some level. But like every other human attribute, as sinful humans, our sense of justice has been distorted and corrupted by sin. In the same way that our hearts and minds and reasoning ability are corrupted by sin, our sense of justice is likewise adjusted, I mean, uh, uh, corrupted by sin. We live in a world right now where in the name of justice, um, we have destroyed the institution of the family and marriage in the name of justice. We live in a world right now in the, in the name of justice, we have endangered girls and women by allowing men to claim the right to be in their, their private spaces in the name of justice. We live in a world right now where criminals are being hailed all over the country as heroes and martyrs, even the worst kinds. And those who seek to administer justice are labeled as the enemy in the name of justice. We live in a world where, where the idea of justice has been hijacked in order to promote a radical Marxist agenda in the name of justice. Like, for instance, climate justice, which is simply code for we, the government, want to control every part of your life, right? Or reproductive justice. That's a new one, right? But that's a code word for abortion or social justice, which actually has nothing to do with justice for anyone, but is simply a way of creating division amongst people along the lines of race, sexuality, sexual preference, uh, gender, and a whole host of other categories in order to separate us. It's no more than a, an overt attempt to destroy Western society. That's what it's about. In the name of justice. But even worse, we live at a time where people want justice enforced, but they do so according to their own philosophical and political ideologies. We no longer want impartial justice. We want justice for some groups, but not others. And it's clear, a white man was tried and acquitted for murder because the jury agreed with his claim of self-defense. And many people claimed that justice then failed because they didn't find him guilty. But days later, a black man was acquitted for the same crime on the same basis, and the same people said that justice at that time was served. What was the difference in their attitude about this? Nothing more than, than the, the men's skin color. We want justice for one group of people, but then not another. A young male shoots up a school and it's national news. A transgender student shoots up a school and it doesn't even get mentioned. It gets hidden 
Why? Because there are groups of people that they want preferential justice for over others. Cities go up in flames all over the United States of America. Businesses burned to the ground. People are injured, murdered in cold blood. Whole neighborhoods are terrorized. And the vast majority of the people who have been arrested in all of those incidences who were known to be radical, violent leftists, right? they are released and not charged for any crime. Whereas a couple who takes it upon themselves to defend their own property from attackers coming against their own property have the law books thrown at them as they're arrested and persecuted by their own DA. Why? Because their political views don't line up with other people's political views. I can go on and on, but you get the point. We see it all the time. We see that justice in our country is not as impartial as we would like to hope. Mankind being created in the image of God has a sense of justice, but that sense of justice has been corrupted and distorted by our sin. So in light of that then, is there any wonder why mankind struggles with the idea of God's own justice? I mean, one of the things about God that is grossly misunderstood is the nature of his justice, the fact that he will judge what is right and wrong, that he will, will be the one who settle all accounts, that he will punish what is evil and reward what is good. The truth that God's justice is one of the most misunderstood and also one of the most hated truths about God himself. The idea that God will objectively judge according to his own standard and that all humanity will be held to that standard is one of many things that people find deeply offensive about our view of God. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, as Paul begins to impact the gospel, he addresses several things that people find offensive about God. Number one is the truth that, that all people know that God exists, and, and, and that is without excuse. The truth that no one, the truth that no one, even an atheist, is innocent is a truth that's offensive to many people. I want to tell you, on social media, I have this little opportunity to share the hope of Christ with people in little short segments. My daughter convinced me to, to get on TikTok. I had, no, I had no interest in it. Suddenly, there's like 5,000 people that are, that are listening to me. I don't know why, right? But, but the thing is, is I actually just, somebody asked me, how did you become a Christian from an atheist? And I told my story, and I told them how I was a, I was a God-hating atheist. And every atheist that runs across that video will tell me, you're a liar. You weren't an atheist. They want so desperately to, to deny the fact that I knew and that they know that God actually exists. And it proves over and over again, right, exactly what the Word of God says. Second is the truth that all people who worship something, because they are innately religious, they that they actually will worship anything but God. They know that God exists. Many people who fancy themselves intellectuals, who will call themselves free thinkers, right, they object to the notion that they would do anything as superstitious as worship anything, not realizing that they worship something, whether it's their intellect or their favorite sports team or, their, or the person that they love or some fancy ideology. Everybody worships something. And number three is the truth about God's wrath, the fact that God's wrath is real and being revealed against sin right now. And that God's wrath will be poured out on evil is deeply offensive to many people, including some who claim to be Christians. Well, related to all three of these truths is the equally offensive truth about God's divine justice, that God will judge by His own standard, not ours, by His which is the truth that Paul is going to deal with here in chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is going to make it clear that God does indeed judge everyone, and He does so by a righteous standard that is set by His own character. And no one, no one can escape His justice, which again is the truth that the world hates. The world hates God's justice. The world hates the idea of God rendering to each person according to what he has done. And because of this, many people, including many who claim to be Christians, they will just out of hand reject the idea of God having divine justice. This is why you hear people say things like, well, a loving God would never send 
someone to be punished for an eternity. How many of you heard that before? Right? I hear that all the time, by the way. Right? God is, if he's God, then he is forgiving and he will just forgive. Right? He will just forgive people's transgressions because we're just ignorant little creatures. We just deserve to be forgiven. Or how about this one? The idea of God punishing sin is inconsistent with what we know about God's nature because God is gracious and He is loving and He is kind and He is good. Right? Or how about this one? After the famous book by a, uh, a pastor who shouldn't be a pastor. Love wins, right? Love wins in the end. And everyone's going to be restored to God because, because God is good and love wins. As if God's justice itself isn't good. As if God's justice... Right, which, by the way, is the foundation of all justice, isn't good. Many people see the idea of God administering justice reprehensible. People will say of a God who judges sin that, that, that He is simply mean. What a mean God you must serve, that he has, to, he, has to, he has to punish every little thing, that He's petty, that He's vindictive. I've even heard people say, well, that's a bloodthirsty God that has to, you know, some even labeled God as narcissistic, that he's needy, right? Oh, he just wants you to behave because he's a needy little God, right? That he's heavy-handed because of the notion that God will hold people accountable for what they themselves do. People reason that God sending someone to hell for their sins is out of proportion. I've even heard people say, well, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. What a, I mean, if you spend very long time talking to people who are atheists, you'll hear that one pop up. You know, at this very men-centered kind of view of God that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Well, it just depends on, I guess, who's the one who judges what the crime is, right? Even though that sin is treason and rebellion against a holy God. This, by the way, is why so many evangelical churches avoid the subject altogether, by the way. They'd simply talk about God's love all the time and, and the grace of God and mercy of God, which all things, which are good things. We should talk about those things. We should talk about them a lot. We need to talk about those things. But they then will in turn avoid offensive terms like sin and hell and wrath and justice and even repentance in order to not hurt people's feelings or offend someone's sensibilities. And they do so not seeking you know, the truth, no, excuse me, they do so not seeing the truth that God's grace is, as described in the Bible, has really no context without God's wrath. You realize that, right? You really don't fully understand God's grace without understanding His wrath. Or, or God's mercy, right? There's not a context for God's mercy unless there's a concept of His justice. That, that the good news has no context without the bad news. You see, Paul, the gospel as Paul has been unpacking for us in, uh, for the Roman church begins with the bad news. It does not begin with, you know what, you guys are so awesome and so worthy and so good. And, you know, God, it's just, you're just so special to God and he just loves you so much. And you know what, if you will just believe in him, he'll grant you all of your wishes and he will, he will make sure good things happen if you'll just turn to him and believe in him. That is not how the gospel begins. The gospel begins with, you know, the good news begins with the bad news that makes the good news necessary. It begins with the truth about the human condition and then the consequences that follow because of the human condition. The consequences, by the way, that all of mankind faces. If God doesn't himself intervene on our behalf, we will all face those consequences. You see, the gospel is the solution to a universal problem of humanity that we all will rightly be judged by God according to His standard. And that is the point that Paul is making in the text today. Somebody would like to turn their phone off, please? Huh? Oh, it's a toy. Okay. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> no, the gospel... The good news begins with the bad news because the, the, because the good news makes the bad news necessary. The text that we have before us is one of the most important for our understanding the truth of the gospel. But it's often one of the most misunderstood and even misinterpreted. But it's one that reveals the truth, the universal truth of God's justice. 
Now, before we jump into the text, let's just take a moment and let's just gain a little bit of context by reading the previous passage because that's going to set up our understanding of the text today. Paul writes, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Right? So notice Paul is talking right from the beginning of chapter 2 about the concept of judgment. Right? He says, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. And then he says, We know, notice the words here, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, right? Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You see, Paul in Romans chapter 1 indicted all of mankind, specifically the Gentiles, by establishing that all of mankind knows that God exists but denies God his rightful place in their life. This is because they... They hate God and love their sin, and so they are rightfully condemned. They rightfully deserve God's justice. And Paul, then in the beginning of chapter 2, turns to the Jews who would, would heartily agree with Paul. They would agree with Paul's assessment that the Gentiles are deserving of justice. They would say, yes, that's right. Those sinners deserve it. Right? Those nasty people deserve exactly what they get. But then he turns to them and he says to them, you are in the same boat as them. That you're liable to the same judgment because you too are guilty of sin against God, just like the Gentiles. The only difference is the Jews think that God is okay with them because they are Jewish. They think that God will not judge them because of their religious affiliation, because of their nationality. They think that God will spare them because of their biological relationship to Abraham. Again, as we quoted from Kent Hughes last week in his commentary, he says that, um, that, that Jews at the time believed that everyone would be judged except for Jewish people. In fact, a Jewish tradition claimed that Abraham himself sat at the gate of hell making sure that Jewish people didn't enter hell. A Jewish philosopher said that, that, that the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh, shall in no case, shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelievers or disobedient towards God, shall share in the eternal kingdom. Right? They, that, was the, that was a commonly held Jewish belief. If you're Jewish, you were going to the kingdom of heaven, even if you were a Jew who didn't even believe. You see, the problem is the Jews themselves had a false view of God's own character, specifically relating to God's justice. They believed rightly that God was going to judge the world according to their deeds, but then God would then use a different standard by which he would judge the Jews. That God would have a standard for one and a different standard for the other which, by the way, then, is a scandalous and blasphemous view of God. The assumption that God would be partial and hypocritical in His judgment is an assault and an affront on the nature and character of God Himself. This paints God as being capricious. This paints Him as someone who would show favoritism. Right? This paints Him as God, as a God that is inherently unjust. I mean, one of the things that we hate as people is when people get special treatment because of who they know. This is why Paul then asks, or do you presume or despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The fact that God will, has not judged you is not proof that somehow, someway, that you are okay with God. Just because God has not killed you in your sleep doesn't mean that he's not his, his wrath is not burning against your sin. It is God's grace giving you time to repent of your sin, is what Paul was saying. The sin that's bringing condemnation upon you just like it is bringing upon the Gentiles. And then he says, right, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts toward God, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul is saying very clearly, the Jews will not be spared God's judgment any more than the Gentiles will. 
because there is no double standard. There is no special exemption for them. There is no special program for the Jews and then a different program for the Gentiles, which, by the way, there are a lot of people in American evangelicalism that believe that there actually is two different programs. There's a famous preacher in Texas who teaches that Christians shouldn't even witness to, to Jewish people because he teaches that they are saved by something different than the gospel of grace, a different program, that God judges the Jews differently than he does the Gentiles. But Paul is destroying completely this notion. He is saying that the Jews, to the Jews, that they are under the same condemnation. And, he, and then he says, he will render to each one according to his works. Right? Or in other words, God is going to judge every person by the same standard. The standard is what you do, according to what you yourself do. Not who you are, right? but what you do. Which then tells us a couple of very important things. Number one is that there will absolutely be a judgment. When you read Paul here, you cannot escape the fact that there will be a judgment. It is not something that was made up, right? This is not a scare tactic. This is the truth that Paul is bearing witness to. Notice, beginning in verse 2, he says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And he says, Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge, who practice such things, will yet and yet do them yourself, that you will escape, what is that phrase? The judgment of God. Or do you presume upon the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance, but because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day, notice the day of wrath, when, what happens on the day of wrath? When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then right after that, he says... He will render judgment, each one according to his works. The truth that Paul makes clear here is the fact that there will be a judgment that comes from God at the end of times. God will, in fact, without question, judge the world. And everyone, everyone will be held accountable. Notice in verses 1 through 5, Paul makes reference to the coming judgment three times. Three times Paul talks about God's judgment upon mankind, and that's right after he alludes to God's judgment of sinners at the end of Romans 1, where Paul says, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve what? To die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul says that God's righteous decree, which is known by the entire world, makes clear that those who sin will be judged accordingly and given what they rightly deserve for sin, which is death. As Paul later will bear witness to when he says the wages of sin is death. What we earn rightly for our own actions is death because of sin. You see, the judgment of God is not some man-made doctrine to keep that the church invented to keep people in line and make sure that they're obedient. The judgment of God isn't a doctrine made up by pastors to keep people in the church and make sure that they keep giving. The judgment of God on the world is the gospel truth. God's judgment and wrath upon sin are realities that all people will face. Because notice what Paul says. He says, he will render to each one, each one according to his works. Now, the word render can mean to give or to pay, which I think is probably more precise, right? That God will pay each one according to their works. Again, the idea of wages, the wages of sin is a helpful perspective here. And the word that Paul uses here that gets translated as each one also means every one. You see, this is a universal term. Everyone, every person, every human being, every person you have ever known, every person who's ever drawn breath in their lives, will be, they will be given what they deserve based on what they do. God will render judgment to everyone who will, and He will give them what they rightly deserve. 
This is an inescapable truth. And the reason why I spend so much time talking about it is because we as Christians, Christians need to settle this in our hearts. Right? This is a truth that the world will push back on quickly. They hate the idea that they're going to be held accountable for what they do. But it's inescapable. And understand this, this truth isn't new to Paul. It didn't, it didn't begin with Paul's theology. In fact, the truth is the Jews should have been well aware of this long before Paul began talking. Because when Paul writes, he will render to each one according to his works, Paul is not making a new statement. What Paul is doing is he is quoting the Old Testament. He is literally quoting the law, specifically Psalm 62.12. Psalm 62.12 reads almost word for word what Paul says, for you, referring to God, will render to a a man according to his what? His work. Paul's quoting the Old Testament, and, and that's not even you know, the, the, the allusion to Proverbs 24, 12. It says, If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keep watch over your soul know it? And he, and will he not repay man according to his work? The coming judgment of God is a reality that's found in the Old Testament as well as the New. And, and, and this is a truth that God will render to people according to their own actions. This is a truth that you will find over and over and over again. And if that weren't plain enough for a reference in the Old Testament, and Paul's words not plain enough in the New Testament, then look with me to Revelation chapter 20. In fact, if you have a second, turn there with me. It's the very last book of the Bible, and 20 is near the end of that. Revelation 20. If you get to maps, you went too far. Revelation 20. We're going to begin reading verse 11. The Apostle John writes and describes this event in very vivid detail. In verse 11, he writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, for his pre- from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book were op- was opened, which is the book of life. And notice what he says here. This is inescapable. And the dead were what? Judged. They were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. This is precisely what Paul is referring to here. This is exactly the event that Paul has been describing. Now John continues on in Revelation 20 and he writes, And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what? What they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, you need to settle this reality in your hearts. There is a judgment that is coming. Not maybe, not possibly, not theoretically. There will be a judgment to come. And each passing day, that judgment is drawing closer. Now, people ask me all the time, do you think we're living in the end of times? I say, of course. We're closer than anybody else has been, right? We're 2,000 years closer than the apostles were, so we got to be getting closer, right? Now, I don't know if it's going to be, you know, two days or 2,000 more years. I don't know, but we do know that it's drawing close, that it's a reality that's coming, it's going to happen, and we, every day that we move forward, we're drawing closer and closer to it. It's... It's like the painful reality that every day all of us are drawing closer and closer to the day we will step across the threshold in eternity ourselves, right? We live sometimes as if we will never die, but the fact of the matter is, is we all have an appointment with death, right? By that same logic and token, there is a day coming that we will all stand before the Lord. The day of judgment will draw closer. And every person who has ever lived will be judged at that time. And that truth is foundational to the gospel. 
Because understand this, if that is not true, then the gospel is not good news. It's not. I mean, why did Jesus come to the earth if that's not true? Why would Jesus have to die if the judgment of God is not true? Why would he have to drink down the full wrath, the, the, the full cup of God's wrath, if God's judgment is not true? And why would the scriptures continually bear witness to, a, to a, an event over and over again if it were not true? Now, I get it. Please understand me. I understand nobody wants to think about this too long. No one wants to imagine someone that they know and love standing before God in their own strength. No one wants to imagine that those that they love standing before God, hearing the words, away from me, you workers of iniquity. And then for them to face the eternal consequences of their sin. We don't want that for our neighbors. We don't want that for our friends. We don't want that for our parents. We don't want that for our children or even our grandchildren. But our emotions and our wants and our desires don't render the word of God on this point untrue. Our feelings don't change the truth. And as Christians, we have but one choice. We will either allow the word of God to shape us and how we understand and how we live, or we will try to take what we think and believe and impose that on the scriptures, pretending that we are following God. In either case, whether you will accept it or not, God's judgment is a settled reality. His justice is coming upon the world and everyone will be held accountable. So God's judgment is a reality. Right? The second thing to notice here is the truth that God's, God will judge based on an objective standard of righteousness. This is an important thing for us to understand. God's standard is objective righteousness. Paul warns the Jews, but because of your hardened and penitent heart, you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The thing that we need to understand is God's judgment is not based on some flippant standard. It is not based on some subjective, ever-changing um, standard. God's judgment is based on His own righteousness. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses here for righteous judgment is actually a single word that is made up of two other root words for judgment and righteousness. And what Paul is saying is not only is God's judgment right and just, but the standard of that judgment is God's own righteousness. You see, God's ju justice is just because of who God is. This is why the Jews are in for a rude awakening because they agree that the world would be judged according to their deeds, but they think that they would be judged according to their identity as Jews, which means then God's standard of judgment would be unrighteous. That means His standard would be a double standard. And if there's something we intrinsically, instinctively hate and know to be wrong is what? A double standard. And that would be, by implication, make God double-minded and unrighteous in Himself, which again is blasphemy. But notice Paul says, He will render to each one according to his works, to which, to those who by patience and well-doing well seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. I want you to notice the, the implication here. God's judgment is based on what people do. Not what was done to them. Not what happens to them. Not based on who they are. Not based on their skin color. Not based on their political affiliation. Not based on who their friends are. God's judgment is based on what each individual themselves do. Now, God certainly does judge groups of people and nations as a whole, as we've seen, but God's final judgment will be on an individual basis, which means each person will stand individually and give an account for themselves and what they have done alone. And notice, those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, 
but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Paul is clearly saying those who, who do good will be judged accordingly. And those who are evil will receive what they deserve as well. You see, it's a very clear standard of right and wrong. One that even children can understand. And notice Paul makes it clear the truth that there are rewards for the righteous. Right? Paul says those who, by patience and well-doing, or doing good things, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And then he says in verse 10, right, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul says that there are going to be rewards for those who do good, those who do right, those who are motivated by purity. Right? He says that there will be rewards of eternal life and they'll be given God's own glory as His children and honor and they will have peace with God. They will be given with all they be given what all men long for, what all men were created for, an eternal glorious relationship in the presence of God. That's their reward for doing good. But then on the other hand, it's very clear that there are consequences for the unrighteous. There are consequences for the unrighteous. But for those who are self-seeking, he says, and do not obey the truth, but only but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And then in verse 9, he says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Those who do evil, those who are disobedient, those who are unrighteous, those who sin will face God's justice and will face the consequence of that. They will experience, as Paul says, God's wrath and fury, His hatred upon sin. And then he says, tribulation and distress. And what's interesting about these two words, distress and tribulation, they both have related roots. Both of these words convey the idea of being pushed into a tight space. Kind of heard of the expression between a rock and a hard place, right? It conveys the idea of extremely difficult circumstances and incredibly difficult Pressure internally and externally is the idea of these words. Paul's words on this subject are remarkably clear. Those who are in sin will experience the full weight and fury of God's hatred upon sin. There's, there's no nice way to put it. There's no way to gloss this over. There's no way to hide this. This is the truth. And by the way, the consequences of sin, right, the consequences of this sin is what makes God's justice right. He gives to everyone what they deserve based on an objective standard, either they live up to or they fail to. It's a standard of clear right and wrong. And by the way, we all relate to right and wrong. If you don't steal, you don't get punished for stealing. But if you do steal, you get punished. In both of those cases... Justice is upheld. If a person is not punished for stealing, that's not justice. But if you're someone who didn't steal, but you're punished for something you didn't do, that's also not justice. If you go to work, you get paid. If you don't go to work, you don't get paid. Both of those cases is justice. If you plant a seed in the ground... Something grows. If you don't plant that seed, nothing grows. In both cases, it's still what? Justice. And so the reward and retribution, they are both integral parts of God's righteous judgment, just like what we would expect. God gives to all those according to what they have earned by their own actions. And notice, it doesn't matter who you are, because God's justice is not partial. Paul writes, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, notice the, the classification, and also the Greek or the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows what? No partiality. The Jews' view of God was flawed because they assumed that God was like a human and that would tend to judge hypocritically and show partiality to those that they know and like. God's justice is righteous and unhypocritical and impartial. The Jews' view of God was flawed because they assumed that God would be like them. 
But God's standard of justice is beyond reproach, which means God is not flippant and not capricious and he's not mean-spirited and he's not unfair or bloodthirsty and he's not an egomaniac. He is the holy, righteous judge of all of the cosmos. And he judges with an even and righteous and just standard. Those who do good are righteous and will be rewarded in heaven. Those who do evil will experience God's wrath. It's as simple as that. Again, simple enough for a child to understand. That is God's standard. But don't you notice the problem here? If that's the standard, right? Can you see the problem here? The problem is if that's the standard, then all all humanity is in trouble. Because as we know, all of us, all of humanity has failed to attain God's righteous standard. To those who, by patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. We know that no one can do this. We might try really, really hard, but we can't live up to this. In fact, as Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 3, the standard's impossible. He says, because, because as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. All have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. They use their throat. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet, feet are swift to shed blood. And their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one, no one lives up to this standard. No one can attain the standard of righteousness. But it's still the standard by which It is required for peace with God and eternal life. Now, this text right here has led then some people to think, well, Paul is just simply contradicting himself. There are a lot of people who have given up on the inerrancy of Scripture and they just immediately point to something like this and say, Paul is, is inconsistent now. Because Paul says that those who do good are rewarded with eternal life, but then elsewhere he says, no one can be saved by obedience to the law. But but Paul is really clear here and says that people who were good and obey have peace with God. So is Paul being inconsistent in what he's saying here? Others then, in an effort to resolve the tension between these two points, what they they will say is that Paul is talking about people who have faith in God. Those are the ones who will, you know, are the ones who do good. Which, by the way, it's true if, you, if we are saved by grace through faith, right? But understand, that is not what is in view for Paul here. He is not talking about that here. Paul is not saying that, that if you have faith, then you're doing good things. It's not what he's referring to here. Paul in his text is talking about what people do, not what God does for them supernaturally. He says that they will be judged according to what they do. You see, the thing that we have to keep in mind here is Paul is referring to something more foundational. He's actually referring to specific people at at a specific event. Paul has in mind the standard of God's righteousness that was laid down for two people in particular. Two people in a garden is what he's looking at. You see, our... Confession of Faith, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith actually gets right to this point. In chapter 6, it begins in verse, I mean, chapter 6 in, uh, in paragraph 1, it reads this way. It says, God created humanity upright and perfect, which is what we know. He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death if they broke it. Which is what we know. We understand the creation account. What did God say? You 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 can have all of this. It's yours. But don't do this one thing. This is exactly what Paul is saying. God's standard has always been the same. And it's been that way since the beginning. Do this and live. Do this and die. As our confession continues and says, yet 
They did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, who then seduced Adam. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law, transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by eating the forbidden fruits. You see, the standard that Paul is talking about is the standard for the covenant of works. God had given Adam and Eve a perfect will, a perfect mind, a perfect environment, and gave them the ability to choose life and death, obedience or disobedience, to honor God or to dishonor God. All of the law and all of the righteousness was summed up in this one point. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Honor me as God and obey me and you will live. Dishonor me, honor yourselves and disobey me. And that brings death. That's the proposition. And that is the standard by which all people are judged by. You see, from the time Adam fell, all of mankind has likewise failed to live up to the standard, even with the advent of the law. You see, the law of Moses was not given to make people right with God, as we will learn, but rather it was to show us all of the ways that we have failed to keep the original commandment to honor God and obey Him. Do you realize that? That's what the law is. It's a summary of all the ways that we have failed to honor God and obey Him. The law shows us all the myriad ways we fail to give God His glory and His honor and worship and thanksgiving that's due to Him. It shows us all the ways small and large how we choose to disobey God. All of mankind has failed to do good and earn life. No one can do it. That is our universal problem. But just because we fail doesn't mean God's standard of justice is any less than perfect still. This is the thing I think that the American church gets sideways, that somehow, because we've all failed, that God says, okay, we're just going to re, we're just going to like, we're going to grade on a curve now, right? We're not going to like hold everybody to the same righteous standard. We're going to say, you know, all of you who are really bad are over here on the bottom of the curve and all you who are really good are on the top end of the curve. And then we'll just kind of have this sweeping arc and we'll include all of you folks here. God's standard is still the same. Because we fail doesn't mean that God's standard is any less than perfect. And it certainly doesn't mean that God's righteous law is unfair. And it doesn't mean that mankind deserves a free pass because everyone fails. What Paul is doing is drawing the Jews' attention to the fact that God's justice is righteous, fair, unhypocritical, impartial, and perfect. And God will rightly and justly and fairly judge each person according to the exact same standard no matter who you are. And the promise is those who measure up, which is no one, will live. And those who don't, which is everyone, will die, regardless of race, culture, genetics, religious tradition. Jews and Gentile alike stand completely on equal ground when they are judged. The thing that Paul is doing here, you have to keep in, keep in mind, is he's removing from the Jews all of their excuses and objections. He's helping them to see that they are just as guilty before God as everyone else. Otherwise, they will trust in their Jewishness for salvation rather than in the finished work of Christ on the cross. The thing is, Paul has painted all of humanity into the same corner. We are all, every one of us, in the same boat. God's standard of perfection but none of us could attain it, which means then we are held and added to those who were self-seeking. Because let's be honest, we've all been self-seeking and we don't always obey the truth and we obey unrighteousness, right? We are the ones who do evil. I mean, come on, be honest with yourself. You still at times do evil. And that means we rightly deserve, we rightly deserve God's wrath and fury. We, we rightly deserve tribulation and distress. Not because God is mean. Not because God is unfair. And not because God is a narcissist. We deserve it because we have transgressed the standard that He has set in His righteousness. You see, Paul in this text is, is, is helping all who read his words to see that they are in need of rescue. It's the whole point of this text. 
That's the whole point of his diatribe. To help them to see that they are in need of rescue and that there's only one person who can rescue them. And that is Jesus Christ. And what we need to understand is that Jesus, when he came to rescue us, he not only died for our sins, right? But he did exactly this. He kept this standard, this law. He fulfilled the covenant of works. He's the one who, by patience and well-doing, sought for glory, honor, and immortality. He is the one who does good. Only he does. Jesus is the one who filled all the righteous standard. He is the one who honored and obeyed God perfectly in every way and earned true righteousness. And by faith in His righteousness, this righteous standard is given to us, as Paul says. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as through God as though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then he says, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. So here's the bottom line truth. Paul has revealed God's just standard of justice. And we all fall short of that. And because of that, we rightly deserve God's wrath. God owes us nothing but His justice and His wrath. Let's just get that clear in our heads. When you look to heaven today and think that God needs to be nicer to you or needs to do something special for you, remember that God owes you nothing but His justice and His wrath. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God the Father sent God the Son into the world and He took on a human nature was born of a virgin and lived a perfect righteous life required by God's standard to have fellowship with God. And then he suffered and died on the cross, enduring God's full wrath that we deserve. And then he was raised three days later, proving that he is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save us from our sin and the wrath of God. And our response to this gospel is simply what? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Not keep a bunch of rules, not work really hard, not try really, really hard. Believe, repent and believe that truth. And when we do, the promise is this, when we do, the moment we do, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are washed completely away. We are made completely clean in the eyes of God as if we have never sinned before. But not only that, we are also then covered in the righteousness of Christ. His perfection, keeping the law and fulfilling the covenant of works, His right actions are granted to us and given to us as our own, which means we now then meet this standard that Paul has laid out. We qualify as those who did this, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And if that were not enough, He has given us peace with God. And we who were at once war with God are now granted eternal life and we're adopted into His family to where we can come to Him and call Him Abba, Father. And then even more than that, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us as the guarantee of our salvation, guiding us, leading us, transforming us from the inside out helping us to grow more and more into the image of Christ. All that Paul is teaching in this text is to drive his readers to the place of this glorious gospel of grace. That is the truth that's in view here. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has done it all for you. And the promise then, the mind-blowing, the world-changing, the heaven-opening promise is, if you put your faith in that gospel, you will be washed completely clean and made perfectly righteous because of the work of Christ. That's the promise and the beauty of the gospel. But none of that means anything without the justice of God. So let us never be ashamed of the justice of God. It's the foundation by which we stand 
to step into glory. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. 